Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we bring you episode number 53, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, currently on Netflix. But before we get started, just a quick housekeeping note. Please go sign up on the website for our newsletter that went out again uh, today with uh, the new episode again, as you might know if you've listened to the last few episodes, we record these about a week ahead of time. So today's episode went out on last week's episode uh, number 52, Whiplash. But uh, please sign up on the website uh, that is linked in the show notes uh, for our newsletter. There's some additional content, and I'll continue to upgrade that as we continue to go along. Also, uh, because this is a new kick that we're on, uh, I am announcing next week's uh, movie in advance just to make sure that you have time to go watch it so if you're an, a regular listener and uh, you've been able to do this next week's movie is wall-e on disney plus so if you have disney plus go watch it on there it is a pixar movie as i understand it i've never actually seen it i know a lot of people love it but we also are going to be having on a special guest that i will announce at the end of the episode all right so dad this was a movie i let you pick and I do regret giving you the opportunity to do so, but why did you pick this? Because it's one of my favorites. It's a movie that I can quote lines from all day long. Hmm. And, uh, you know, is, is that something that uh, somebody should pick on you for? Uh, well, you, I don't. You, you, you mean a, a true double standard? Ah, uh, okay. So... Only those that uh, wear Batman underwear can get away with stuff. I've never worn Batman underwear. Mm-hmm. There have been sure. other characters and cartoons on my buttock, but never Batman. Okay. Anyway. Or Spider-Man, in case anybody was interested in that. I, I don't know how much longer anyone wants to talk about my buttock. Okay. I don't know what the plural of that is other than maybe buttocks. Botox. But I? No. But X's? No. Okay. Anyway, let's move let's on. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so I can remember the first time that I watched this film, but since this was your pick, do you remember the first time you saw this? Yes, I do. I was in high school. There was a group of people that were on the newspaper staff with me who were raving about this film and how funny it was. And I started to watch it and I was completely going, what in the world is this? And then uh, somebody told me, well, don't just start with the Holy Grail. The TV show is on PBS at the time, I believe, in Wisconsin, or Wisconsin Public TV, I think, had it. Watch that a few episodes so you get used to the timing, the pace, and what the humor is, then go back, and which I did and thought it was hilarious at that point. Okay. Do you remember the first time you tried to show it to me? Um, no, I actually I don't. So I'll take you back to the day of Super Bowl 35. Do you know who played in that game? Not offhand. So it was another Super Bowl in Tampa Bay, uh, since we just recently had one, and it was the Ravens and the Giants. And okay. that score was rather lopsided. 
And that is, in my opinion, the greatest defense I've ever seen. Uh, so the 2000 and or the 2000 Ravens, led by Ray Lewis uh, and uh, Rod Woodson at the time, beat the Giants 35 to seven. After the Giants had whipped up, thankfully, on the Minnesota Vikings in the uh, NFC Championship game, 41 to nothing. So, but anyway, <laughs> you tried to introduce this movie to me. No more than we got to the coconut scene, and somebody called you and said, "Oh, the Super Bowl is on." Oh, I can't. I didn't think it started at five o'clock. And so we turned on the game, and the next play was Brandon Staley's first touchdown that basically ended the game for the Giants because they were never in it after that. <laughs> okay. So the first time you tried to show this to me was the same day that Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. Okay. Special meaning. Anyway, uh, and I maintain that I feel about – the same about this movie as I did back then. What the fuck is this shit? <laughs> okay. Uh, this is one of the most nonsensical, overtly absurd things. Of all the comedies that you've tried to show me, or that like you've asked me to try and share in you, this is the one where I draw the line. Airplane, sure. Blazing Saddles, absolutely. Caddyshack, uproarious. Monty Python, chirp, 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 chirp. So anyway, your plot summary. Coconut-wielding Brits fight absurdity and silliness in the quest for the Holy Grail. I thought it was simple and and straightforward because you really can't describe a character per se because all of the the pythons play multiple parts. Yes, they play multiple parts. You have a hard time remembering when you're not watching the film who's doing which part. But, you know, whether it's uh, I, I mean, I certain ones, you know, John Cleese was the Black Knight. John Cleese was the uh, uh, old warlock or whatever he was with the ram's horns. You mean Tim? Um, Yes, Tim. They call me Tim. Anyway, (laughs) Graham Chapman was always Arthur, and Terry Gilliam was Patsy, his sidekick. Coconut-wielding sidekick, yes. Yes, that was clicking the coconut shells, because... They made this film for like a half a million dollars. And so they were like, how in the world are we going to ever afford horses for this? So they came up with this idea of just what they do on radio, which is click coconut shells together to sound like horse hooves. So so they thought it was absurd. So that's what they did. They just had somebody click coconut shells together and instead of actually having horses. So, all right. For the recognition on this film, this has grown in stature uh, ever since its release. At the time, it was not a critical success, and frankly, most critics did pan it. However, in the years since, Monty Python and the Holy Grail has grossed more than any other British film in or exhibited in the U.S. from 1975. In the U.S., it was selected as the second best comedy of all time in an ABC special, Best in Film: The Greatest Movies of Our Time. In the UK, readers of Total Film Magazine in 2000 ranked it as the fifth greatest comedy film of all time, 
and a similar poll of Channel 4 viewers in 2006 placed it sixth. I would like to add that the movie I actually think is funnier, Life of Brian, or as I mistakenly called it when I was about 13, Life of Brain, it was ranked higher on all of those lists. Okay. It is a funny film. It does have certain sensitivity uh, issues as far as religion for those of us who are religious. I think that's actually more acceptable, but we'll get to that at a different time. Anyway, so what is this movie about? And I'm just going to give you my version of it. You tell me. (laughs) It's exactly it. It's the story of of King Arthur uh, told in the most absurd, silly manner they possibly could, where you have six pythons who were at their creative best at that moment in time. They were all young men who were at the height of their creativity, and they put together something that was uh, together, more or less, um, a brilliant montage of the type of humor they did on their TV show. I don't know. It's either you like it or you don't. If you don't like it, fine, whatever. Well, comedy is very subjective. Hmm? Comedy is very subjective, so I, I really can't disagree on that it it just is it's either it tickles your funny bone or it doesn't okay first scene they they're they're sitting there clicking the coconut shells that's not the first scene more or less it is yes it is unless you're counting the credits which i am because the subtitles is his own joke well of course so but all right so the so, of course, now they have to figure out how do you explain these guys clicking coconut shells. So they come up with this, that a swallow is, or is, is supposedly carrying a coconut. And how does a five-ounce swallow carry a one-pound coconut? Well, they could, you know, do it in tandem. And, you know, and they make the whole absurdity about swallows carrying coconuts. And then that theme is raised several points throughout the film. So, and it's kind of a running joke. Uh, so who is your best performer? I've always had an, uh, a strong affinity towards John Cleese. Um, I think he did a phenomenal job in each part he played. But it's very close with Michael Palin, who I think also did a, a phenomenal job. I went with John Cleese. I think he simply had the most to do. He played the most characters that come to mind, as we already mentioned. He was Tim, he was the Black Knight, he was Sir Lancelot, and he was the French Taunter. Yes. And most of the iconic moments of the particular movie do involve him. (laughs) I'm going to save part of it because he's also my most charismatic, so I won't completely undercut myself there, but... I just, I don't know. I think he did the most, and I think he, by far, of any of these guys, is the funniest. I would tend to agree. I I think part of my feelings towards Cleese and what I think about Cleese is based on the fact that he was trained as a barrister, graduated as a lawyer, but went into comedy writing instead. So there's a certain aspect of that that's, I don't know, crossover. I'll take it back to the 
notion of comedy going back to Laurel and Hardy type of um, archetypes, the tall man and the fat man. And I think Cleese is an extremely talented tall man or straight man because not only is he good enough to set up all of the jokes, but he gets his own laughs. <laughs> yes. But I'll talk more about that more here in a second in Most Charismatic. So who was your best secondary? Well, I gave it to Graham Chapman just because he was on screen so much as Arthur that um, uh, he had a lot to do. It wasn't always the most funny, but um, I gave it to him for that reason. I thought about giving it to Terry Jones as the director because he had to put this montage of uh, silliness together and make it seem like it all meshed, but... um, well, he was I only one of two directors. Well, Terry Gilliam directed the artistic aspect of it. The actual film director was was Jones. Okay. I went with Chapman, too, though, because I think there is a lot to do with the Arthur character without, while making it seem serious, yet not uh, a lot of his parts set up the absurdity of the other characters surrounding him because he really doesn't have any jokes of his own he's able to play into everybody else by being the most serious character and that's kind of a hard role to play and play well so if you enjoy this movie you usually are underappreciative of the amount that he's having to carry as far as the comedic backbone all right so let's move to most charismatic i already said i have john cleese so i'll just uh, finish up my point on him. I, I simply like John Cleese the most because, as I was kind of hinting at a little bit before, I think he's the funniest of any of these characters. I think it also helps that he was in several Bond films. So, I mean, he's got that as far as my vote, too. But I also think, and it's this one small quality, he doesn't have to do a silly, stupid face or this weird expression that in order to get the joke out or make get people to laugh, it's like how people used to describe George Lopez. You remember the George Lopez school of comedy? Yes. Yeah, where you just finish off every joke and then you bug your eyes out. Well, except that it seems like George Lopez picked that up from Michael Palin and uh, Eric Idle. Because every time they finish a joke, they just make some weird face. <laughs> okay. I'll watch for that next time. I'm not saying that I agree, but... That's just the way I took it. You can take it simply as my own opinion. I And I like Michael Palin, but it just seemed like every time they had to finish off a joke, it was they had to make some weird expression uh, to just highlight that, oh yeah, you're supposed to laugh right now. Uh, okay. I actually think Idol has gotten much better in his old age when he's more subtle and uh, underhanded. Like, if he's doing interviews, I actually think he's uh, much more uh, charismatic and funny. Okay. So who's your most charismatic? I had please for that very reason. He's had the biggest uh, careers in movies and in acting of any of them. You know, and he... Uh, he just has a certain presence, um, whether it's a fish called Wanda, and he's done other parts as well. He just kind of has always had that knack, 
he's done a ton of commercials, humorous commercials and such through the years that as well. So he's just had a very large presence on stage and in film and TV. All right. I'll let you nominate the first of best scenes. We're the knights who see me. That's one of the scenes that I find is the most funny because it's completely absurd. They're, uh, they're, they're seeking a shrubbery, which is just another idiotic thing. And, you know, I just find it, I found it funny then. And I still find that scene funny. In fact, um, a lot of times I've used the term or have quoted the line for various things that I'm a knight who says neat. Yes, I think there will be many um, different uh, quotes in here. This is more quotable than it is a scene movie. Agreed. Because I think a lot of the, the lines are pulled out in certain moments of context as the jokes, as opposed to the setup or the sketch itself. So I think that's going to be the more interesting part of this particular episode. But uh, my first one, and it's probably one of the most iconic from this movie, I'm going to go with the Black Knight. Okay. And it, it simply put, the amount of times that, and this is also why it's my most indelible moment, it's the first thing anybody ever talks about when they describe this movie. <laughs> Which I find fascinating because to me, and I've always thought it was kind of uh, ridiculous, it is by far to me one of the least funny sections of this movie. <laughs> I, you know, I think I've grown to appreciate it a little bit in the absurdity as I go along, but I, I've never like had more than a, a small chuckle at this particular scene. And yet anytime this movie comes up, that's the thing that they pull out. And so, I mean, this thing is on flipping t-shirts that I see around, uh, you know, just randomly at like Comic-Con. So just a flesh wound. What, what are you talking about? Your arms off. <laughs> uh, I've had yes. worse. That's what she said. Yes. Anyway, all right, what's your next one? The Tale of Sir Lancelot. All right, so uh, that was one of my nominees. Michael Palin up talking to Terry Gilliam, or I mean, Terry Moore, who's his, supposedly his son. He's about to get married, and he says, you know, you're about to marry a woman who's got really big crocks of land with his hands very strategically placed. Yes, that one has been a running gag over our household for many a year. Yes, because the first time I used it was with your mother, who had no idea oh. what I was talking about. Yeah, it's so good it. that she's not going to listen to this episode right now. Well, I, or I think I said it with, with Uncle Andy there, and of course he busts a gut. So, yeah, because he's a Python fan. Yes, you got to play to your audience. Oh, yeah. So. I nominated it, but I think it was just for a, a different reason entirely. Like, uh, the yes, that particular line is one you pull out, but I think the just ridiculousness of that weird marching, like, they play that uh, same clip, like, five times in a row with the music of Lancelot trying to run up to the castle, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he just starts stabbing everybody. <laughs> Yes. 
And then he's like, oh, well, I thought there was a damsel in distress. And yeah, uh, some of the lines of that will be coming up here as we go along. So, again, I don't want to completely ruin my takes by uh, getting too involved in some of the scenes. Again, this is a lines movie as opposed to scenes. So maybe not the depth or the quality that we normally get into in particular scenes. Did you have another one? Exploiting the masses or the scene with uh, Arthur walking through the field and Michael Palin starts saying, well, who looked at you, King? And, uh, oh, there's some nice filth over here. Yes, going on and on about how, uh, you know, they're uh, a commune that's independently run and, you know, you're not our king. And it, 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 it's a purely political thing that's making fun of the whole idea of monarchy. Yes, as well, there will be lines pulled from, from that uh, going forward as well. One I did not actually nominate a line for, because I think this might be one of the few where it's it's the total scene, the bridge of death. It's been probably the scene that I talk about most often, and it is also my nominee for favorite scene. It was the one that has always stuck out in my mind. What is your favorite color? The, the part that I've, I've now in watching this in retrospect, because it's probably been, gosh, at least 15 years since I've seen this movie, was, uh, what is the capital of Assyria? Do you have any more nominees? The uh, scene with Tim leading into the, the uh, cave, the rabbit with the gnarly teeth. <laughs> so that whole scene in and of itself is, uh, I always found hilarious i'm out of nominees so it's up to you at this point <laughs> the tale of uh, sir robin was good as was this tale of sir galahad where where he's well you really don't have to save me i'm i'm, I'm fine I, you no you have to be out of here so and then uh, the the other scene leading up to camelot where uh um, uh, Terry uh, Jones is uh, the wise knight who gets brought a witch to to determine whether or not she really is a witch. So I can already tell you one of my favorite lines is, she turned me into a newt. I got better. Yes, that was also one I picked out. <laughs> All, All right. right, so what is your favorite scene then? Boy, it's so difficult to pick on this because there's so many that I enjoyed. It's got to be the whole scene, the rabbit, the cave, and the bridge. That whole sequence towards the end that is just so memorable and, and funny. Okay. And your most indelible moment? Uh, the Black Knight. Yeah, that's what I went with, too, as I already mentioned. I, again, I think that just has a legacy that is... Uh, set apart from the movie itself. All right, well, this is traditionally where we take a quick break for one of our sponsors. We will be right back. All right, welcome back. Let's jump into best lines, which may be the best part of this episode. So what is your first nominee? Your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. I nominated the whole line. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. 
Is there anyone else up there that we can talk to? No. Now go away, or I shall taunt you a second time. All right, my first nominee had to be my first nominee because I've known this particular line since I was about three years old, maybe even sooner than that. And uh, this has a certain sentimental value to me uh, because as uh, someone used it when we played Fisher-Price Castle and we'd take breaks in the middle of our battles, bring out your dad. (laughs) I wonder who that man might have been. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Your next nominee. She turned me into a newt. A newt? I got better. I think I've used that uh, a few times, too. I'm not an old woman. Well, then what am I to call you? Well, you could call me Dennis. Honestly, that might have been the biggest laugh I got all night because I had no memory of that line. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? It could get it by the husk. It's not a question of where he grips it. It's a simple question of weight ratios. A five-ounce bird cannot carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it doesn't matter. Will you go and tell your master that Arthur from the court of Camelot is here? Listen. In order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please, am I right? I am your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how'd you become king then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I am your king. Listen, strange women, lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. (laughs) Uh, Help, I'm being oppressed. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. It's only a flesh wound. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that, then? I've had worse. In order to pass through these woods, you must find a shrubbery. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I thought your son was a girl. That's understandable. And after the spanking, the oral sex? Well, I suppose I could stay a bit longer. Go boil your bottom, you sons of silly persons. You only killed the bride's father, you know. Well, I didn't mean to. Didn't mean to? You put your sword right through his head. Oh dear, is he all right? Uh, yes. All right, you got any more? Uh... No, I I mean, I could probably think of a few, you know, where the, the rabbit with the gnarly teeth and, you know, and, but uh, now nah, let's, let's just move on because, I mean, the entire film at some point is 
almost all quotable. All right, so then let's move to our Stanley rubric. All right, first up is Legacy. What did you have down? Nine. For the simple fact that um, this film is probably even more popular now than it was then and uh, continues to be something that a lot of people quote, and it's passed through generations. There are Python fans uh, of all ages. Obviously, you're not one of them, but uh, there are others of your ilk who are. All right, so I'm going to give this 9.5. Really? Yes, really. I think this is something that is, you know, there are certain comedians that are the comedians comedians i think in a certain way the pythons in stature are the comedians comedians or the sketch group of comedians like even to a certain extent i would say all of the sketch shows after that kind of take off in a certain manner on the pythons uh, I don't think you'd have Saturday Night Live if not for Flying Circus. I don't think that uh, some of the best sketch comedians would have the same effect had it not been for Python. You wouldn't have gotten the Chappelle Show or Key and Peel or any of these other ones that are uh, in the pipeline of uh, sketch comedy in the same way. And putting these movies together, I think, has an effect. Now, these are different as far as stitching together a bunch of sketches, essentially, into a cohesive shell but in addition to that and how important this movie is to a lot of comedians and a lot of big comedians like i've said before the legacy of this has grown uh, exponentially since its initial debut in 75 it has a cult following uh the fact that the black knight is still understood or is a cultural touchstone at least in some circles i think adds to it the fact that we were able to bring out an entire Tony Award-winning Broadway play that is now being made, or the musical version of that, is being made into a movie, uh, as I I mentioned to you off-air, but that uh, originally was being done at 20th Century Fox and now is being done at Paramount, and I don't know when that's going to start filming because the filming schedules are all over the place, but I think this just continues to have a long-term or like a new generation is exposed to it repeatedly and it just comes to a new audience seems to have an effect seems to have a small but loyal cult following and fans just pop up all over the place this still has significance and i think a lot of people have seen this movie and despite my lack of in personal enjoyment, I recognize that this does have uh, an effect on the public at large. So 9.5. You've won me over. I'll agree with your number. One story I just wanted to tell when you're talking about that is, is that I watched an interview, and I want to say it was on uh, David Letterman years ago with Eric Idle, and he was telling the story about how He's at home one night, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door, and it's Keith Moon, the now deceased but was drummer for The Who. And he said, oh, a bunch of us were all sitting around having some drinks, and we thought we your show was hilarious, so we decided we would go and get you and bring you to the party. And so 
All of a sudden, he's at a party, and it's with The Who and The Rolling Stones and a bunch of other uh, British uh, rock stars at the time, and they're all fawning over the pythons. And so they're like, holy cow, we have rock stars treating us like rock stars. Well, I know. I mean, the fact that a bunch of their movies were financed by, like, I think George Harrison was a big backer. Queen had a lot of uh, money or invested in some of these movies. So it's not an unusual thing for them to have had an effect. All right. So impact significance. This one I went a lot lower uh, just because, and I think we've kind of teased this out at the time, it had a lot of mixed reviews. Most of the critics at the time basically lampooned this. Um, they said it was slow, it was methodical, that the Pythons just couldn't let one joke uh, be fine by itself, that they just had to continue past the point of excruciation. Or excru- excruciation? Is that... Well, if it's not a word, it is now. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but I think uh, Gene Siskel's review is rather scathing, that like, yeah, it had a few mom- moments of uh, it was uh, ten moments of actual laughter f- uh, with seventy minutes of silence. Kind of like uh, watching Gene Siskel. Well, especially now. Well, back then, uh, unfortunately, the ten minutes of laughter was usually when he was trying to be serious. Fair enough. It really didn't get a following, but, you know, and the life of Brian was so difficult to get anybody to back. Um, Like, George Harrison basically was the producer and provided the money for it. But by by 1981 or two, when they did The Meaning of Life, by then they had a huge following. So I'm not going to go quite to the same level you did because, yes, it had a slow following to begin with. But as the Pythons and the Flying Circus uh, got broadcast in the United States in the late 70s into the early 80s, it picked up a following. And the reason they did the meaning of life was because they were all trying to figure out how they were going to make money Um, because the show was over. And so uh, some producers said, hey, we've got this big pile of cash. Write a a screenplay. It'll sell. And so they wrote a bunch of scenes, and none of it made any sense. And they had a long session where they're all drunk, and basically some of them were taking swings at each other type of deal. Okay, but this is now a movie much after this. But no, we're talking about in the early 80s. Yes, I'm. but this was from 1975. We're talking about this film. I understand. But by the, by it, by in 75, it had very little impact, but it started to gain steam within a few years afterwards. By about 77, 78, it became much bigger of a deal. So to that extent, I went with a six and... Uh, 6.5. I don't think this was setting the bar for comedy at the time, unless it was, again, I think this is more of a cult movie, although I would say some of the best comedies are cult movies. So I gave it a 4.5 because I I think it was just a tick under 
average reception in its uh, immediate five-year run, particularly given the uh, story you mentioned about Life of Brian. That came, what, 79, I think? And that one, they had a lot of trouble trying to get funding and backing for. So, uh, yeah, George Harrison and some of the other ones ended up making out like bandits because that one did extraordinarily well. But you would think if this movie had done a little bit better in its immediate uh, significance or presence, I think it would have had a a much different impact. And this one just was not something that in the moment uh, was as impactful. No, that's not why The Life of Brian, they had difficulty in getting it made. It was the subject matter. Back in that time frame, you know, when you're poking fun uh, about. But if this movie had been ultimately successful, they would have gained a level of trust that I think they would have been a bit beyond the the reproach. Um, I think you don't understand what uh, society was like at that time in the 70s. So most no. likely not, since it was at least 11 years before I was ever born, let alone in a level of adult consciousness. Correct. No, there was. <laughs> I mean, uh, Lenny Bruce in the 60s was persecuted for jokes about the church. You know, the 60s and 70s, it pushed the envelope. But um, it was not mainstream, and you would have had a hard time with that subject matter, no matter how well the Holy Grail would have done getting the life of Brian done for that reason. All right, so what did you have down for novelty then? Well, it was unique because it was uh, a historical piece written entirely nonsensical with a comedy base. I don't remember ever seeing a film like it before. It predated very, you know, Airplane and and some of the other films of that genre where it's basically just joke after joke after joke. And so I gave it a fairly high novelty score for that reason, because I don't ever remember seeing anything like it before. So I went with a nine on this for that very reason. All right. So this is where I'm going to quibble with that number just slightly. Not not for a matter of opinion, but rather a matter of fact. I would say this is a genre film and that they're writing jokes around a genre film because you're poking fun at you know, medieval or um, some type of fantasy with King Arthur and that sort of thing. And King Arthur had been done at least movie quality wise before that. Now they were doing it on a shorter budget. So thus why they went to some more absurd extremes with the coconuts and then the final sequence, which we'll get here to in a minute. But how is this any different? The comedy is different. That's where I separate it. But as far as a genre breaking comedy, uh, how is this that much different than Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles that came before it? Now, I again, and in the 70s, this is, is experimental. This wasn't something tried and true. It's not like Scary Movie or some of the other things, but I, I do knock it a little bit for that. Well, the difference is, the difference is that Yes, there are funny lines and funny moments in 
Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and such. But there, um, there's a central story that you're telling with jokes written into it. This is more of its jokes, and they just filled it in with the central story to hold it together. So the approach, and again, the humor style is different. So I'm not going to quibble with that. I went with a seven because of that. But I, I think as far as how to do a comedy movie, I can't give it full merits on that that edge of it. Okay, I understand your point. So what was your number again? Nine. All right, so that's an eight. I, I think that's reasonable. Uh, classicness, this is going to be probably more suggestive than or subjective than we otherwise have been. And this is going to be the difficulty with comedies is whether the jokes hold up. I'm sure for you they do. For me, they do not. I went with a Bellwether 5. Very rarely did I get anything more than a chuckle from this movie. And I've told you repeatedly the ending, it's even worse now that I've re-seen it. I just thought that, like, they had some explanation behind the arrest or whatever else. But I do have one important figure on my side about the ending. Notably, John Cleese. John Cleese has said the most regrettable thing about this movie is the ending. He <laughs> hates it. Okay. And apparently the only reason that they went for this is, is again, they were uh, out of money and there was supposed to be some big battle sequence that Michael Palin wrote about at some point, but they ran out of money, so they thought it was uh, more absurd, and Michael Palin thought it was funnier for them to just get arrested. Okay. But well, I gave it a Bellwether 5. And really, if you stop and think about it, how did Seinfeld end? I don't care, because I didn't think Seinfeld was funny either. Unpopular opinion. Uh-huh. When I saw how Seinfeld ended, I thought of the ending of the Holy Grail, which is they tried to find the most absurd thing you could, which is they ended up all arrested and in jail. And so I thought that was really a uh, an homage to the whole or to Monty Python. I've never I, I would love to ask Seinfeld that or um, Larry, Larry David. David if that's entered into their consideration at all. Um, but having watched a few episodes of Arrested Development, Larry David's sense of humor is not far off from being a python. Larry David has nothing to do with Arrested Development. Excuse me. Do you mean Curb Your Enthusiasm? Excuse me, yes, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. Very different shows. Yes, so what was your classicness score? I went with a 8.5 because there is some date or some datedness of the jokes. You know, if you look back on it, and, and the only way I think sometimes it ages better than it does, they did a lot of cross-dressing and a lot of homosexual jokes. But a large portion of that and you can say it ages better because Graham Chapman was gay. And so. Oh, I guess I didn't know that. Yes. And he uh, 
was right in the middle of writing most of those jokes and being involved in most of those jokes. So to some extent, because of that, you can give them a little more wiggle room than what you should. I certainly don't think that they had, well, and maybe this is just, I'm either having a huge blind spot or something else. I really didn't see a whole lot of cringy jokes for modern sensibilities in this. There were a couple of things sexually, but like nothing that got my antenna up on the um, modern liberalism or political correctness, you know, the PC police type of uh, sentimentality that I often have. But I, you know, there's no real racist jokes in here because everybody's white anyway. Uh, there, like you said, I I really didn't even get m- that there were really any homosexual jokes or anything that, you know, again, I, I just, there's nothing in here from that point of view that, uh, you might get where we're still debating when to, it's going to be appropriate again to do Blazing Saddles. Yes, that was a conversation I was having with, uh, your mother, sister, and grandmother over to lunch. Because um, we were talking about the film for, we're you know, the recording for tonight. And we were talking about that. And, of course, Sarah, your sister says, well, what's wrong with Blazing Saddles? Oh, Sarah. <laughs> I'm oh, like, Sarah. um, you know. Oh, poor and, innocent and, Sarah. Yes. And, and, of course, your mother says, well, <laughs> the entire thing is is extremely racist and i said yeah but you know who wrote all the jokes well, the racist okay. jokes was was it, it, it's Richard racist Pryor. in the same it, it's racist in the same way that doing a musical called springtime for hitler is <laughs> racist i mean it it's well yes written by a jew back a certain level of power because the primary hero or character is a black sheriff in a Western. When <laughs> most Westerns, if they featured a black person, uh, they barely got any speaking lines and were usually a farmhand. Yes. So there is a bit of uh, some reclamation, and I know saying that as a white person is kind of maybe another big blind spot for me, but I think that was the heart of what the movie was supposed to be. But interspersed in there are a ton of bad name-calling jokes, uh, racial jokes, stereotypical jokes. Yeah, it's it's just chock full of that. So well, anyway. Even, yeah, even to the Busley, or Busby Berkeley scene at the end with Dom DeLuise, boy, that's, an, that's a cringeworthy moment in and of itself. But we don't want the Irish. Uh, yes. All right. Anyway, rewatchability. Do you want mine first or do you want your own? Oh, Gil, give yours. All right. So this isn't on the level of some of the silent films that I watched because <laughs> I have a hard time with silent films, so I can't put it as, as a one in all good consciousness. It's not um, out of Africa, which is just... Uh, overly long and for no good reason, even though I did get some level of enjoyment from that. So it wasn't even quite at that level. And maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but we wanted to create new barometers. So I gave it a two. 
<laughs> Words cannot express how dumb I think this movie is and how difficult it is for me to ha- hold my attention <sighs> on this because there's no central narrative to the story. I've told you repeatedly that narrative is one of the biggest things to me. And the if you want to ruin a movie for me, have the narrative not make any sense. And in this movie, there's no flipping narrative. It just goes constantly back and forth between things they apparently thought were funny. <laughs> and you find that Christopher Nolan is the greatest director today? I mean, his narratives no, 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 no. are all no, no, no. over the place. No, no, no. First off, if you want to get into a conversation with Christopher Nolan, to follow his narratives is – a somewhat of a puzzle. So I find that engaging. He's my favorite director. I did not say he was the best director because okay. partly he really disappointed me on Tenet, but that's another day and another movie. <laughs> yes. A few years from now at the best. Rewatchability. Well, I'm going to balance you out. I don't give this score often. 10. All right. I mean, I, I watching it again. There's certain scenes and certain lines that I forgot about because I don't I don't get to watch it as much as I thought would like to because I know it annoys most of the people around me about it. You know, watching it too much or too frequently. But um, well, there's just a certain level of absurdity and dryness that just doesn't connect in the same way from uh, uh, my funny bone. I appreciate lots of variations in comedy, all kinds of different things. I mean, I just happened, I was having a very stressful day, and I needed about 15 minutes to just completely, you know, change my attitude. I happened to turn on my TV in my office, and they had Naked Gun 33 and a third on which is a lot of physical humor at the Academy Awards. And I just bust out laughing. I could not stop laughing. I laughed for 15 minutes and felt so much better. But again, physical humor, I enjoy. I like, you know, there's a ton of different things um, I can appreciate. And uh, so I just have an appreciation for the dryness of this and for the plan, the just absurdity of the situation. Honestly, I'm I'm going to knock myself a little bit here. I'm a comedy snob. I have a very small cross-section of things that appeal to me as funny. And so I re- recognize that I'm never going to get every piece of comedy that's out there. It, it's a very small cross-section between like intellectual and sarcastic humor and occasionally a... Uh, a a uh, surprising or physical bit will get me, but that only works once or twice. You know, I can't, I can very rarely do it multiple times and it make a whole lot of sense to me. Which is why you do not appreciate Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther movies. No. For, uh, okay. I should put a caveat. I like the original Pink Panther because I love David Niven. But past that, you know. Okay. So, all right. To recap for everybody, uh, in case, uh, since I didn't do the averages at home, we agreed on a 9.54 Legacy, 
which oddly enough I talked you up on. Impact significance, we had a 5.5 average. Novelty, 8. Classicness, 6.75 average. Rewatchability was a 6. 9.5 for audience score, so out of a 95%. The critic score actually is 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, that gives us a total of 45.25 points. So okay. pretty well right in the, the smack dab of the middle of the list. Okay. So, Any remaining questions? I don't. I've seen this film enough. I've heard enough. I've read enough. I've talked about it. Seen enough interviews being done by the Pythons. I've watched all the specials they've done. So, no, I don't have any remaining questions. I only have one. What is the capital of Assyria? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing WALL-E with special guest Roger Walkoff which, as I mentioned earlier, is available on Disney+, Plus. so please go watch that before you listen to next week's episode. You won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whatever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at at gmotepodcast, or the greatest movie of all time is available through the show links that are in the episode notes. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. <laughs>